Yes, what Tim said, listen to him. How are you out there? We are in 2 Corinthians. Do you enjoy worshiping? Amen. We don't have anybody watching us up there, Tony. We're like, we need to, we'd be two kids that you have to separate in class. They don't get it. Well, since you don't get it tonight, let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this place and where we can come and worship you, Lord. And I pray for anyone who's in here tonight who's been whipped up during the week and just beat up and came to church to get refreshed, Lord God. I'm praying that your refreshing would continue to fall upon them. Father, I know that you were ministering during worship and just mending broken things, Lord God. So continue that tonight, Lord. And as we break bread here and get into the word, I pray, Lord, tonight that all that we're going to look at would just come alive to us and it would change us from the inside out, Lord. I, don't pr- I pray that no one leaves tonight without getting a touch from you. According to your word, I pray that in Jesus' name, name. amen. 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 Well, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to endeavor tonight to cover the whole chapter, so uh, I'm going to read it to you. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writing his second letter to Corinth. He says this, but I decided this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then will be the one making me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? This is the very thing I wrote so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy was the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not for me, but in some degree, not to say too much for all of you. Sufficient for such a person is the punishment which was imposed by the majority. So that on the other hand, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a person might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you for, but one whom you forgive anything, listen, I also forgive. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did so for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and the door was open for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But saying goodbye to them, I went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us reveals the fragrance of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we must not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. A lot of moving parts in there. There's some 
presumption in that we understood what happened in the first letter. We're going to jump back there and cover. He's talking about an offense that happened in the church and the correction that took place there. And if you just kind of pick up here in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, you can kind of miss the context. So we're going to make sense of that tonight. But remember, there, there were those in the church who tried to usurp Paul's leadership and say he had too much trouble in his life to have the hand of God on his life. They were like, Paul, you got too much drama and too many problems and too many afflictions and too many thorns in the flesh. Obviously, God's not with you. Now, there were those who used the affliction and the trial and, the, and the, you know, all, all the issues that Paul dealt with as an excuse to undermine his apostolic authority and literally dismiss the epistle that he's writing here. So he kind of pushes back on that, and in this chapter, he adds more detail explaining his reason for not visiting them because he decided not to come to them, and some people said, see, he doesn't keep his word. You know, when people are out to get you or out to find fault with you, no matter what you do, they're going to find fault with it. You know, you could give them 50 bucks, and they go, why not 100? You could say, you look really nice today, and they'll say, well, didn't I look nice yesterday? You ever meet people like that? Well, Paul's dealing with some of them here. So when we go through trials in life and we deal with difficult people in life, let's remember a couple things. Everyone who's gone before us has done the same, including Jesus, including Paul. So he adds more detail to his explanation of why he didn't come. The last time we talked about the idea that Paul didn't want to overburden them by constantly leaning on them for strength and support. You know, most of us tend to lean heavily on those who are dependable to us. There's certain people we always call. There's certain people we always run to. There's certain people we always dump on emotionally. Hello. And it's quiet now. Because you're thinking, Pastor, please don't tell me I can't, I can't just do that all the time. And Paul is showing the wisdom in here that sometimes it's not wise to do that. There are those who are dependable and faithful to us, and, you know, we can lean on them, but we need to first learn to lean on the Lord. I've seen God remove good people from people's lives because they made gods out of them. Your, your spouse, your mother, your father, I can always go to my mother for prayer, but I've got to learn to trust in the Lord and lean on the Lord and let the Lord lead me, amen. I can always go to Pastor Mike. This and there's times where the Lord will strip us and isolate us, so we have to depend on him. And Paul, in a way, is preemptively doing that, and that's a sign of maturity. Verse 1 adds... Uh, another layer of reasoning behind Paul's decision not to visit them, and it has to do with his emotional state. He says, but I decided for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So there again, he knows he's bumming. He knows he had to deal with a difficult issue. He knows it created some turmoil in the church. He's going through hardships on the mission field, so he decides it's not the time, given the emotional state I'm in, to come on you again because I'm going to dump on you and it's unhealthy at this point. Paul was in a state of heaviness and sorrow, and we've all been there at times. Now, look, I'm not telling you not to find a listening ear when you're hurting because that's foolishness. But what I'm telling you and I'm telling me is that we've got to be careful that we don't lean on people to the point that we make them God for us. And God will, God will deal with those situations because he's a jealous God. 
And he's, look, there is a Jesus and there's one and nobody else is Jesus. We need to have a relationship with him, amen? So Paul's privy to that and he's being mature here. In verse two, it gives us a peek inside of his thinking here. He said, for I, if I cause you to sorrow, who then will be the one making me glad by the one who is made sorrowful for me? So he realizes he needs to lean on them at certain points, but can't always dump on them because he's going to wear them out. Have you ever worn out people in your life? Come on, if you haven't, the day is young. The point I want you to grab here is that we need to use wisdom in our relationships. Well, you didn't see that in there. Well, you're going to get it. <laughs> we need to use wisdom in our relationships. You know, how many married people out there know you can only dump on your spouse about a certain topic a certain amount of times? All the men are raising their hand. All the women are going... Yeah, you can only dump. There are certain topics that I can't dump on my wife anymore. There's times in my life going through things where I was a broken record. And she, you know, nicely said, I, I had enough. And you don't mess with a Canadian when they say they've had enough. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's mutual both ways. But, you know, Paul has wisdom here. We need to have wisdom here in that we should not wear out our relationships. Sometimes we dump on people to the point where it's unwise, it's unproductive for them and for us, and we need to run to God and find our comfort. Verses 3 and 4 allude to an issue that had been corrected in the church. When you read 3 and 4, you know, this very thing, I wrote you, and he starts going into this. And if you don't have the context of the first epistle to the Corinthians, you might think, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about an issue that he wrote to them before about sexual sin in the church, uh, specifically a brother that was in an incestuous relationship. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to explore it here in just a second. But he was actually in sexual morality and bragging about it and the church had accepted it you say are you making this up let's go back to first corinthians well you don't have to go back there just write down first corinthians 5 1 through 7 and i'm going to read it to you here's paul's correction of this incestuous relationship in the church that was not handled correctly he says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not, that, that does not exist even among the Gentiles. Wow, what a way to start off. <laughs> He's saying, guys, you got immorality within your ranks and it's so immoral that not even the Gentiles do this stuff. He says, namely, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I wish you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have declined to turn such a person over. I mean, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? 
Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So there again, Paul speaking in terms that Jews would understand, the leavened bread, you know, he says you could be a new lump. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them they're a lump? <laughs> and God wants to make us a new lump. What's the old lump? It starts with an S and ends with an N. Sin, when we're in our sinful state, when we give ourselves over to sin, that's the old nature, that's the old lump. And Paul's saying, you know, you guys, it's not good. Your boasting's not good. The way you've handled this is not good. He, you know, I'm not there, but I'm judging it, and I'm telling you to handle it. So that's, you know, going in reverse, going to 1 Corinthians 5, seeing what Paul's talking about. Apparently, that situation we're going to see was handled, and it had created some shockwaves in the church. So not only had, did he have a hard time on the mission field, they were kind of beat up there too. And in his spirit, you know, it's not the time to come to them. Is this, is this making sense to you now? Okay, so the person who was part of the Corinthian church who was involved in this sin, having his father's wife, uh, you know, Paul calls it out and he says what it is. It says it's sexual immorality and you basically ignored it. Now, in verse 5 of the text we just look at, Paul passes judgment on it. He uses his apostolic authority, and he pulls no punches. You know, sometimes we just need to say it like it is. It's amazing how pe people in the body of Christ, people in certain churches, people behind pulpits can make excuses for sin when it's them or someone in their family or a sibling I've seen pastors excuse the most ridiculous of sin because, you know, it had happened in their family or it happened to someone in the church who is a big giver. Yeah, let's say, ooh, that's ugly, right? But we've seen things like that, Pastor Mike, right? And maybe you have too. But what I'm trying to say here, sometimes sin needs to be called sin and called out. There are certain church cultures that allow for all kinds of immorality in the church. People are living in adultery. People are cheating on their spouses. People are having babies at a wedlock, and nobody says nothing. Thinking, I should have stayed home tonight. But that's not right. And the Apostle Paul was unwilling to do it, and Jesus was unwilling to just turn his face and ignore sin. And we in the body of Christ need to sometimes call it what it is. Now, we do it in love, but we do it to correct. Why? Because it's leaven, and it's going to pollute and intoxify the body. It's going to turn the new lump into the old lump. Don't be an old lump. Don't go backwards. Don't tolerate sin. So back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul expresses how distressed he was about the matter. You know, uh, in verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So he's saying, this issue destroyed me. It broke my heart. Look, look at the way he says, anguish of heart. Many tears, made sorrowful. He's not being dramatic. He's being transparent. You know, if you're thinking, what's the big deal? That means your heart is callous to sin because sin should break our hearts. We're not being judgmental. We're not acting like we're better than anybody else. But we realize the turmoil and the destruction that this will create in the body of Christ if it's allowed to stay. 
that leaven, leavening the lump. And Paul says, I'm, I'm broken about this. Many tears. My heart is shattered. I'm sorrowful. And trust me, listen, being in leadership is not for the faint of heart. If you've ever thought, wow, I wish I was the pastor. Like, yeah, we can come talk to me. We'll let you take over for a week. No. You know, because let me tell you something. When you're the leadership in, in the church, in the body of Christ, you become the morality police. Come on, don't get quiet on me now. But, you know, if there's something going on in the church, well, when's he going to take care of it? What's he going to do about it? Did he confront them? Did he pull it out? What did he say? Because, you know, now I'm the morality police. And let me tell you something. Being the morality police and, and, and dealing with sin is both exhausting and messy. It's a messy thing. Let me tell you something. Even as a leader, when you do the right thing biblically and you do it with love, sheep take sides. And if you have ever been around sheep, you know they're fairly docile and they're not too smart, but they bite. So when something's not that smart and it bites, that's a dangerous combination. Because often it'll bite the person who's doing the right thing. Welcome to leadership. So I'm giving you just a little snapshot, a little transparency here, because understand, you, you, we do have to handle things. We do have to do it in wisdom and in God's timing, and sometimes not publicly. So it can be, you know, picked through by the peanut gallery to see if it was handled the way you would have. <laughs> and, you know, Paul is kind of expressing that. He's shattered. He's broken. You know, this is a difficult thing. He's heard about it. They're heard about it. So it wasn't the time to visit you guys again. The last part of the verse assures them that all the emotional turmoil Paul felt about the issue was not over his disgust with them or his anger towards the person who sinned, but for his great love for them and his concern for their spiritual well-being. He says that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Why this broke him is because he knew if the leaven was allowed to remain, the, the final result would be the casualty of souls. And he loved them so much that he didn't want to see any of them miss it. See the beautiful heart of the apostle there. He's not just ticked off that he's got to handle another mess that these crazy Corinthians made. He's concerned that it might, you know, have damage eternally on people's souls. Every time there's trouble in the church, every time there's sin in the church, every time there's church discipline, there's always casualties. There's always, you know, friendly fire. There's damage. Paul knew it, and you should know it, and we should understand that the most important thing is that we protect every member of the body of Christ. Now, we're going to see his heart continue here. In verse 5 and 6, it indicates that they handled the situation, and they handled it in a way that Paul instructed them to handle it. And the outcome, you know, even though they did the right thing, the outcome was that it created sorrow among them. How many know you can handle the situation perfectly, you can please God in the way you handle it, and it still hurts? Maybe you've gone through things in your marriage, things in your family, things with, you know, your, your close friends where, you know, it's a mess and it's confronted and you, and you deal with it. But now there's, you know, the aftermath is that everybody's hurt. Everybody's a little sore. And there, there needs to be a time of healing. 
just too real for you tonight? All right, I just, you got quiet on me, so I thought I'd check. So Paul realized it created sorrow. Dealing with messes in the body of Christ is never fun, but it's necessary. The sin within our ranks must be dealt with. And, you know, it goes back to, again, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Clean out the old leaven. Clean out the sin so that you may be new. And realize there's going to be soreness and there's going to be aftermath. Doesn't mean it was handled wrong. Just mean that's the effects of sin. Verse 6 suggests that the punishment that was meted out was, was correct in that it, it fit the crime. Uh, listen to this. Um, sufficient, say sufficient. sufficient. Sufficient for such a person is this punishment which was imposed by the majority. Thank you. Um, so they had done what they were told, and they meted out the punishment. They corrected them. They, they excommunicated them, and they looked for repentance. Okay, and Paul's saying, you, you did the right thing. The punishment, you know, fit the crime. It was, it was administered or imposed by the majority, so that means there was solidarity there, and that's a good thing. And they did the right thing. Now, church discipline is part of what needs to happen in the body of Christ. You know, most people think, I won't stand for any discipline. If anyone tries to correct me, I'll just go to another church. <laughs> and five people said, bye. But the thing is, I want you to know, us pastors in the area know each other, and we talk to each other. <laughs> I've had people leave only to be told by the pastor they went to, you need to go back and apologize to Pastor Rick. I've had people come here and say bad things, and I say, that's one of my very best friends. You don't, there's no place for you here with that attitude. So you can run, but you can't hide. But churches need to have enough relationship with each other. Pastors need to have enough relationship with each other that wolves can't just bounce from congregation to congregation. That unrepentant people who need to repent can't just go and pack up and start over someplace else. You know, we talk about this stuff when we mean we get a good laugh at it. Ha, they thought they were going to do that to the body of Christ, but not on our watch. So hopefully we can, we can foster more of that, and that's a good thing. Uh, too many churches are disjointed and competitive and not realizing they're on the same team because we're all part of the family of God, and we need, we need more of this. But, uh, you know, obviously here th the judgment was given. Paul's happy with what was said and how they handled it. And, you know, uh, somehow, some way, the person who was dealt with was in, you know, just a state of dis disarray at this point. Let me say something. We should always correct sin when, you know, if someone messes up and they straighten out all by themselves, sometimes you don't need to jump all over it. But when there's sin and it's unrepentant, this guy was actually bragging about what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. We got all kinds of people in our culture that celebrate sin to the point where they brag about it. And they say, you got to accept me, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Well, that didn't fly in the body of Christ then, and it shouldn't fly in the body of Christ now. Well, let me say something. Correction must always be done in love. Do you know why some people just can't handle correction? Because there's no love in the way the church meets out correction. And correction always has to be done in love, and it must always include the opportunity for repentance and restoration. 
Hear what I'm saying here. We don't correct someone to destroy them and to excommunicate them. Some of these churches with their, their excommunication, they're, they're going to, I mean, it's almost laughable. They're going to show up in heaven and Jesus is going to go, who are you? Oh, the religious and lost crowd. Well, thanks for throwing everybody out, but you know what? You're out too. It's not about, you know, us, we excommunicate you. No, when we correct someone, you have to include the, you know, the, 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 the clause in there that, but if you repent, we can restore you. Because that's what God does. Well, not for big sins, pastor, or not for sins I don't like. Yeah, for all sins. Because the point of correcting sin is to get people to repent so that we can restore them. We're not looking to thin out the body of Christ. God is not willing. Jesus is not willing that any should perish. So anytime correction is meted out and there's no room for repentance or restoration, that's the wrong way to handle church discipline. So this guy was bounced and there was room for uh, there was room for the restoration and repentance, and we're going to see that in just a bit. Paul acknowledges that and actually recommends it. Now, verse seven shines the necessity, shines a light on the necessity of extending grace and forgiveness. Listen to verse seven. So that on the other hand, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Now, this guy's been corrected. Obviously, he's repented, and now Paul is saying, restore him. Look what he says. You should forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a person might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. When someone is called out on sin and they humbly accept the correction and they repent and they stop doing what they were bragging about. It's time for the body of Christ to open up their arms like Jesus opened up his arms, to wrap their arms around that brother or sister and to reaffirm our love for them. Amen. See, this should give all of us confidence and hope that even if we mess up really bad, the body of Christ is not going to shoot its wounded and kick us when we're down and just forever turn their backs on us. There's certain people that have done certain things in certain churches and they're never welcome back again. And sometimes I understand that, but it's not biblical. Oh, please, I can't deal with them anymore. Can't look at them anymore. They're just going to do it again. That's not the heart that Jesus has. When we ask for forgiveness for the same thing over and over again, he's like, Jesus doesn't go, you're just going to do it again. No, he forgives us. And he said to forgive 70 times 7. So the body of Christ needs to embrace and infirm those who do repent. Now, look, if they don't repent, then you, you break fellowship with them. Why? Because as Paul said, you turn them over to the enemy for the destruction of the flesh. People shouldn't enjoy the benefits of being part of the family of God and sitting under the anointing, enjoying the worship, enjoying the word, and they're, they're, they're living in sin. But if they repent, we restore them. Um, verse 9 says the whole issue of correcting sin within the body was just as much a test for the church as it was for the one who was caught in sin. Now, the one who was caught in sin, the test for them was were they humble enough to repent? And apparently this guy was. 
But there is also a test for the body of Christ in there. Look, look what he says. For to this end I also wrote, so that I may put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. He's saying it was a test for them, and you get that. But do you realize, you know, uh, Corinthians, this was a test for you. Were you going to listen to leadership and handle this thing like it needed to be handled? Well, the guy passed his test, and they passed their test. So this is a good thing. See, and this is how it happens. The enemy brings sin to destroy and fragment, but God, you know, turns things around. And even, you know, even this weapon that had formed against them did not prosper because in the end, it brought repentance and restoration, and it brought obedience to the leadership within the body of the church. He said, whether you be obedient in all things, and they were, you know, and the, the point is that it was hard to deal with, and it was awkward to deal with. How many know the last thing most of us would want to do is confront someone about sin? Most of us are not confrontational like that, and the people who are confrontational like that have no business being in leadership. <laughs> you know, well, I'm a troublemaker. I'll go right in there and stir it up. I'll bring my spoon and stir the pot, and I'll make a bigger mess. Hang on, Pastor. You can count on me. No. So they were obedient, and they passed the test in dealing with their morality. Now, let me just kind of throw a hypothetical out there. How has the contemporary church handled the test of dealing with immorality in our generation? Some have done better than others, but as a whole, I think the body of Christ has been way too tolerant of sin. And we've been willing to make allowances for things that offend the Holy Spirit. And it's cost us the presence of God. Let's pray for those churches that have stopped preaching the word and stopped correcting sin and where leadership just has a blind eye. Because it's cost the presence of God in those places. And those places will wither and they will face the correction of God. Verse 10, Paul says, forgive uh, who, you know, he says, I forgive whoever you've forgiven. Now, this is kind of an interesting verse. He's, it's kind of a little bit of a tongue twister. He gets into these little spins of logic. But one who has forgiven anything, I also forgive for indeed what I have forgiven. If have I forgiven anything, I did for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his devices. So, you know, the forgiveness thing here is Paul saying, look, I don't have to be there to correct everything and put everything in order. I'm entrusting that to you. So if you restored the situation and you've forgiven the brother, then I forgive him. Amen. See, that, that's a good way for leadership to be. Not that they have to micromanage everything and be in charge of everything and it only counts if they do it. It's not the way it works. Paul was wise with a shepherd's heart. He's like, if you guys handled it the way it had to be handled and you forgive him, I forgive him. It's a good thing here. And the church should be allowed to self-govern Every local church should be allowed to self-govern. We need a little church structure, but we don't need controlling lofty boards and powers and bishops and all this stuff. It's not biblical, and it makes a mess. Every local church should self-govern. Now, when you have leadership that's above the local church, they need to step in when the church doesn't self-govern and there's doctrinal messes or there's moral messes. And that's the point of, you know, the loose... 
the loose form of church structure that we see in the New Testament with bishops and overseers. And, you know, we see the apostles that kept the doctrine sound. There's a need for that in the body. But churches shouldn't be controlled by, you know, some head office or some head guy on a throne with a scepter. I don't know what the heck they do. Are you, are you getting me? Self-govern. Let that stick in your spirit. We need to be responsible for doing the right things for the body of Christ right here under our noses. Amen. So he says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So there again, the, the, the point is this. If we don't forgive and we don't restore and we dash people to smithereens every time we mess up and we don't self-govern and we don't act like we're responsible to do our part, then the enemy comes in and he takes advantage of the church. And that's what Paul is saying here, that we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. Well, what are the devil's devices? Bitterness, unforgiveness, slackness, poor leadership, undisciplined, you know, congregations, people who won't accept correction, people who won't repent. That's how the devil works. And so hopefully we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. Because if we are, he'll take advantage of us and he'll decimate the local church. Verse 12 through 17, we're kind of bringing this in for a landing here. Paul closes the chapter by giving the Corinthians an update on his travels, on his missionary journeys, and on his evangelistic exploits. So he kind of shifts gears in verse 12 here, and he starts talking about, you know, his his ministry, and he says, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, so missionary journey, travels to Troas, there was an open door for me in the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but saying goodbye to them, I went to Macedonia. So he's sharing what he's doing out there. He's sharing the fact that he didn't see Titus where he thought he would find him, and that was distressful to him. So he moves on to Macedonia, and apparently we, we find that he meets up with Titus there, and it's an encouragement to him. He talks about the gospel of the kingdom producing a sweet fragrance to those who are being saved and a stench to those who are in sin unto death. You know, the gospel is either a sweet fragrance or it's a stench, and that depends on a person's spiritual situation. To the person who doesn't want to hear about Jesus and is tired of getting witness to and, and just wants to live in, in their sin and enjoy the sin for a season, the gospel being preached to them is a great annoyance. Have you ever given someone the gospel only to find out they, they just were angry? We talked about, Pastor Mike and I, when we were in New York School of Urban Ministry, going out and witnessing certain places, you would hand out tracts and people would throw them back at you. Yeah. I remember on Wall Street, guy in a you know, $5,000 suit looks at the track and throws it right back in my face. And, and you know, I'm just like, wow. You know, and then I slammed him on the concrete. No, I'm just, <laughs> that, that didn't happen, right? That's what the, the police report didn't say that. So anyways, you know, it's difficult when people reject the gospel, but realize they do because it's a stench to them. But to the person who's in Christ and loves Jesus and, or is open to God, how many times have you shared the gospel with someone and they were just ripe and ready to come into the kingdom? Like low-hanging fruit. I mean, you just touch it and boom, it breaks off. Anyone? 
Amen. And if you haven't done that yet, get out there and take a swing and take a risk and, 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 and be available, amen? Because you know what? Being soul winners is for all of us. And once you taste and see the Lord move and use you and you watch someone who's lost get found, man, it is just the best thing in life. So, you know, Lord, give us all more opportunity to do those things. But Paul, you know... He's differentiating between the, the certain hearts of people and, you know, realize the gospel to us is a sweet fragrance, but to some, it's still a stench, and let's pray for them. Verse 17 concludes with Paul distancing himself from the religious merchandisers. Look what he says here in 17, for we are not like the many. So there was a lot of these guys out there peddling the word of God. Did you hear that? Those who peddled the word of God were what I call religious merchandisers. They were using the gospel to advance themselves, to gather a following to themselves, to enrich themselves. And how many realize that still goes on today? The gospel is often hijacked by the false teacher, the false prophet, just the, the faker who wants to have a position that they can exploit and fleece people who are just, you know, ignorant and just fleece them. And when I say fleece, I mean take money from them and use them for their own purposes. So Paul calls that peddling the word of God, and I like that. And I call them religious merchandisers and people who are just profiteering off the gospel. Now, he distances himself from them. We are not like the many peddling the word of God. Look, look but as from sincerity... But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Everything we do in ministry has to be done in sincerity with a right heart. Look, we, uh, to, I don't know if you had fun, but we had a great time worshiping tonight up here as a worship team. Amen. But if we got up there and we're like, man, we're going to play some good music or we're, we're going to jam for Jesus, that, that's the wrong heart. And as worshipers, we always have to constantly guard ourselves to not get sucked into that. And, you know, and as worshipers, you got to guard yourself not to miss the mark of we're worshiping God. Amen. And the songs and the, the chords and the singing and the, and the music is all secondary. But we don't want to be merchandisers. We don't want to peddle the gospel. We don't want to be, you know, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. We don't, want to, we don't want to miss the forest from the trees in that we need to do the right things with the right heart. And I'll close with this. I encourage you, and, and I do this myself, and, and I need to do it more, but we need to examine everything we do. How we, how we worship, how we take in the word. Are we listening? Are we taking notes? Are we applying it to our lives? How we give, amen? You know, because we can make anything mechanical to the point where it becomes religious and there's no reward in it. Well, we sing the song, we give the, we give the money, we, you know, we listen to the sermon, we go to the diner, that's what we do. But we should be willing to examine everything we do to make sure we're doing it with the right heart. Because otherwise, there's no reward to attach to it. There's a lot of people who do religious things there's a lot of people who do uh, church things. There are a lot of people who do good things. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. See, it's not about doing religious things. It's about being known by him and knowing him.
Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for the word. I thank you for this amazing book to the Corinthians here, the second epistle to this crazy church that mirrors the Laodicean church, that mirrors our culture. God, let the truth of what is said here explode off the page and become real to us, that it would provoke us to examine our hearts, to to weigh our motives, and to make sure we're in the faith and that we're serving you uh, and we're getting to know you and that we're known by you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Give him praise tonight.